Every world religion seems to have unique symbols. Judaism has the Star of David. Islam has the crescent and star. Taoism has the yin and the yang. Christianity has the cross. At the same time, each religion has its characteristic rituals. Each world religion seems to have defining rituals. Buddhism has chanting. Hinduism has fasting. Islam has pilgrimage. Judaism has the Sabbath. What about Christianity? What would be the main identifying ritual, you might say, of the Christian faith? It would have to be baptism. And baptism is truly unique to Christianity. And for the past 2,000 years, baptism has been the universal initiation rite into the Christian faith. It's known the world over. And even non-Christians from other countries who don't know much, they still know part of what identifies a person as being a Christian is baptism. Baptism is similarly a big deal in the New Testament. It shows up almost immediately. That's something we've recently learned in our study of Matthew's gospel. Very quickly, we, we hear about this thing called baptism. Before Jesus himself comes on the scene, he has his predecessor, John. But everyone knows him by his epithet, which was given to him by his characteristic work. Baptism, John the Baptist. And this new ritual of water baptism would go on to become essential to the church. In fact, Matthew's gospel ends with Christ himself commissioning the church to carry on this work of baptism. The last verses of Matthew, Christ gives standing orders to the church to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So I'd say that makes baptism a pretty big deal. But baptism is not always so simple to make sense of in the New Testament. And that's because the word for baptism, baptizo, is used in so many different ways. There is baptism into Moses and baptism into Christ. There's baptism in the Holy Spirit, baptism in fire. There's a baptism of suffering. There's a baptism for the dead. There's the baptism of John, the baptism of Jesus, and the baptism of believers. And none of those baptisms mean the same thing. So you can see that that understanding this concept of baptism in the New Testament is not as simple as just dunking someone under some water. The Bible has a lot more to say about it than you probably thought. And Christians over the centuries have wrestled to make sense of all the Bible says about baptism. And that has led to some divergent views where not all Christians believe the same thing. That only makes matters more confusing. But Christians today, some Christians today disagree on the mode of water baptism, whether it's immersion or sprinkling, on the subject of baptism, whether it's believers only or believers and their newborn babies, and also the meaning of baptism, whether it's just the sign and symbol of regeneration or the cause of regeneration. These issues matter so much that one of the most prominent Protestant denominations just took the name Baptist. They want to be known primarily for their distinct views on baptism. Now, I trust you're already getting the impression that baptism is a bigger subject than you probably thought. When the New Testament mentions baptism, there's a good chance there's more going on that, than meets the eye at that place. And I bring all this up because last week that was definitely the case. If you're with us, we've been going verse by verse through Matthew's gospel. Last time we came to this critical passage that mentions three different types of baptism in one verse. And to refresh your memory, that would be Matthew 3.11. 
This is where John the Baptist says this. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So here we have mention of John's water baptism, the Messiah's spirit baptism, and then the Messiah's fire baptism. And we wonder, like, what does this mean? What are these three different types of baptism? None of them are equivalent to the church's practice of water baptism, by the way. These are all three different things. And so in our quest to understand Matthew's gospel as we're going through it, naturally we wonder, like, what is going on here? What, what does this mean? Well, John's baptism, John the Baptist's unique baptism, is something we'll look at next week. Because in the next passage, we see how Jesus himself comes to John. He submits himself to John for baptism. That in itself is a hugely significant watershed moment. And it'll give us plenty of time to consider the meaning of John's unique baptism next week. Now, so last time, went through Matthew 3, 7 through 12. And I, I think I gave you enough of a rundown on this baptism of fire. We say in the context, it, it's all about judgment. John's words of judgment. The context is all about God's wrath. The verse right before verse 11 speaks of fire as a form of God's judgment. The verse right after also speaks of fire as a form of God's judgment. There's really no doubt that this baptism of fire refers to judgment. The judgment that the Messiah himself will bring to people who refuse to repent when he returns. But it's this middle mention of the baptism of the Spirit that's intriguing. I gave you the the short version explanation last time. But I felt compelled to come back and address it in greater detail today for your edification. Partly, I do this because understanding this baptism of the Holy Spirit is just so important for understanding the Christian life. But also because it can be so confusing to many Christians. I think that a large part of the reason for that is the rise of Pentecostalism 100 years ago. Really, in 1901. The Pentecostal movement began, and it centered around this notion that the church got spirit baptism wrong for the previous 1,900 years, and that instead of being associated with the filling of the Spirit at salvation, spirit baptism was seen as something that takes place after salvation. It became this second, subsequent filling of the Spirit that's meant to empower Christians to work signs and wonders, and Pentecostals believe that what happened to the apostles at Pentecost, hence the name, in Acts chapter 2, that, that should be normative for all believers today. So Pentecostalism and then later the charismatic movement have now spread around the world and their ideas and teachings have gone pretty mainstream. And I'd wager that most of you have already encountered fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, but this is what they believe about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's this second filling of the Spirit that enables you to perform the signs of the Spirit, chiefly speaking in tongues. And until you experience it, you're a step below in the Christian life. But at the same time, most Christians, though, they've, they've never studied the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They've never been taught on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're just kind of clueless. They don't know what to make of any of this. So which is it? What is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is it something that takes place at salvation? Does it take place after salvation? 
Either way, what is it for? What does it mean? What does it not mean? When John the Baptist said that the Messiah is coming and he will baptize you with the Spirit, what did John mean? What did he have in mind? What should we expect today? It's actually a huge deal because it greatly affects how you understand salvation and how you understand Christian living. If you get the baptism of the Spirit wrong, you're bound to get other aspects of the Christian life wrong. And meanwhile, when you do get and grasp what this baptism of the Spirit is all about, it leads to some major implications for the church. And so I want to help you with this today. We'll get back to our next passage in Matthew next week. But I guess you could say this is like a bonus study on Matthew 3.11, trying to help you understand in greater depth what this baptism of the Spirit is all about. So many Christians are either just clueless or untaught what the Bible says about spirit baptism. I just felt compelled to come back and do a little extra teaching on it for you all. So that's what we're going to do today. I want to take you through a bonus Bible study on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's to help you better understand what it means and why it matters so much. So that's our plan for this morning. Let's start off with just some baptism basics, a little background, some baptism basics in general. The main word for baptism in the New Testament is baptizo. It means to plunge, to dip, to immerse something in water. So if you go down by the river, you're you're washing your clothes in the river, you plunge them under the water. You could technically say you've baptized your clothes. You've immersed them in water. That's what the word originally meant. But this this secular word came to take a sacred significance over time. It it evolved where it didn't mean just to plunge something underwater. That's not how we think of baptism anymore. It meant to, to symbolically immerse a disciple in water to communicate identification. That's a key word. Circle, write it down, circle it. Identification, that's really what's being communicated by all these different types of baptism. It really captures the essence of baptism. Identification is usually what's meant when you have the word baptizo used with the preposition ice in Greek, which means into or unto, baptism into something, and then followed by what's called an accusative. That just, it, it, what it means is identification. To be baptized into Christ, in essence, means identification with Christ. To be baptized into the Spirit means you're identifying with the Spirit and what all that means. So we're talking identification with a person or a thing and all that goes with it. This helps explain a verse like this. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 and 2. Just listen. And Paul says to them, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul's saying here, looking back to the Exodus, is that during the Exodus, as Israel followed Moses through the parted Red Sea, he says in a way that they're being pictured as being baptized into Moses, which simply means that in that moment, they became fully identified with Moses as their mediator, and he was. And we, of course, no longer identify with Moses as our mediator. We identify with Christ and really the whole triune God. But that makes sense of the Great Commission, right? Where Christ tells us to make disciples of all the nations. And now we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Because we now identify with with God and the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
And this basic idea of baptism as identification also helps make sense of 1 Corinthians 1.13. There Paul says this. The Corinthian church was prone to division. He says to them, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You may recall that the Corinthian believers were making the wrong identification. They're forming little cliques. You know, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. But they weren't baptized in the name of Paul, were they? That They weren't identified with Paul. They weren't united to Paul. No, only to Christ. They were only baptized in Christ's name. That's signifying they've identified with Christ. Christ is their only head. This notion of baptism into Christ is actually the, the starting point for understanding baptism in the Spirit. And so just to run with that for a second, baptism into Christ, it, it is our baptism into Christ that is the main baptism spoken of in the New Testament. And that's actually what water baptism symbolizes, our baptism into Christ, uh, which is also known as our union with Christ. If you're fast, you can turn to Romans 6, but Paul speaks of this baptism For example, in Romans 6, as well as other places, just looking at verses 3 and 4 of Romans 6, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. To be baptized or immersed in Christ means to be united with Christ. In baptism, we come to identify with Jesus to the highest degree, where his death to sin is now our death to sin. His rise to new life becomes our rise to new life. And again, this is actually what water baptism symbolizes. It's a living object lesson. It's an outward symbol of these inner salvation realities. That after a person confesses Christ as the Lord and Savior, we we dunk them underwater. Why do we do that? It's a symbol. As they go under the water, it's really symbolizing their death with Christ. They have died in Christ. They've died to sin. They've died to their old self. They're pictured plunging into that watery grave. But as they... We don't keep them under the water. We bring them back up, uh, picturing their rise to new life. That in and with Christ, they have risen to new life. What makes these realities effective, though, is not the water. It's this spiritual baptism into Christ. Our union with Christ is what makes these things a reality in our lives. And in case you didn't know, that this whole notion, this concept of union with Christ... That's actually the chief mechanism of our salvation. I know I'm just doing a little extra teaching this morning, but just think about this. Our union with Christ, that's actually the chief mechanism of our salvation. I can put it to you this way. Do you know that we are saved by works? Say that again. We are saved by works, not our works. Never said we're saved by our works. We're saved by Christ's works alone. That's a gotcha, right? I know. We're saved by his works. Uh, Our works righteousness count for nothing 
to save us, but his finished work on the cross is what saves us. We are saved by his work. The question is, so he did this work. He completed this work. How do we receive the saving benefits of his work? How how do they transfer to our account? The answer is by virtue of our union with him. That's what scripture teaches, also known as our baptism into Christ. This baptism into Christ is a metaphor for our union with Christ. We must be united to Christ by faith for his death and his resurrection his atonement to become effectual for us. Because just because he died and rose, that doesn't mean everyone goes to heaven. Only those who by faith are united to him receive the benefits of his work and are saved. And the main image Jesus himself used to teach this is that of the vine in John 15. Christ is the vine and the vine is the source and the supplier of all life and all vitality to the branches thing is, before salvation, we're all like dead branches. We're cut off from the vine. We have no life within us. We're just dead and lost. Uh, But God first brought us to new life. Through regeneration, he made us alive. We're now living branches. And in that, that next second, that next moment, as we come to behold and believe in Jesus, he then fuses us to the vine. He makes us alive and unites us to the vine. And now all the resources of the vine flow to us. Life eternal flows to us. And it's this relationship of our union with Christ explains how we receive all the saving benefits of his death. Now, if, if you're starting to get all this, there's one more connection to make here. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in because we go on to learn that, that this work of uniting us to Christ is performed by God the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who's attributed with this work of uniting us to Christ. So you can think of the Holy Spirit as the glue that forever binds the believer to the Savior. The Spirit makes this abiding link with Jesus possible. You have to understand the benefits of salvation were gained by Christ and Christ alone on our behalf, but they are applied to us By the Spirit. The Spirit does the work of applying salvation and applying redemption. And so it's not surprising, therefore, to learn the New Testament that it speaks of another baptism next to the baptism of Christ. It's a baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that corresponds to the baptism in Christ. In reality, these two baptisms are two sides of the same coin. They always accompany one another. Two sides of the same coin. They always go together. They always complement one another. But as you are being pictured as immersed into the Holy Spirit, what's happening is your union with Christ is being accomplished. And accordingly, it's also not surprising to learn that in John 15, that same upper room discourse on the night before his death, he teaches them about the vine and the branches. In that same upper room, he also revealed to them, like, like Rod mentioned this morning, that as he prepares to leave them, a helper will come. Another helper will come to them. In fact, it's, it's better that he leaves because otherwise the, the helper would not come. He must leave that the helper, the Holy Spirit, will come to them and he will bring to fruition all the realities of the new covenant that Jesus was going to inaugurate with his blood. And so the Spirit's role in applying salvation is critical 
And that is what is primarily referred to by the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's move on now and really talk now more specifically about this baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about spirit back, baptism expected. Spirit baptism expected. It kind of takes us back to what John the Baptist foresaw. He was looking forward to the time when the Messiah would come and baptize in the Holy Spirit. His baptism so much greater than John's baptism because he would actually baptize with the Spirit. We already studied this expected spirit baptism from John's perspective, but now let's fast forward all the way to the immediate expectation of the promised spirit. That's found in Acts chapter 1. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Takes us right after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but right before he ascends and he gives the church the final parting instructions. Acts chapter 1, let's first look at verses 4 and 5. Right before the ascension, which we read for scripture reading, but Acts 1, 4, it says, Gathering them together, Jesus and his disciples, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard it from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Side note, he doesn't mention the baptism of fire in this context because that's for unbelievers. He's only mentioning the baptism of the Spirit, which is about to come upon them. But you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is a clear statement that the expected coming of the Spirit is close. It's about to begin this new spirit baptism. In contrast to John's baptism, this new spirit baptism, whatever it is, it's about to begin. Now, you need to make sure you you get straight the place of this spirit baptism in redemptive history. That this spirit baptism could only take place after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And why is that? Well, because one of the main purposes of the Spirit's coming in this way is to apply Christ's salvation, his salvation work on the cross, to believers. That obviously could only take place after the cross. And then Jesus also had to ascend, after which he says he would send down the helper, the Holy Spirit, to then indwell and empower believers. This is all part of the new covenant promises which Christ inaugurated with his blood. And so now we can see the promise fulfilled because it does happen right after this. So spirit baptism expected. Now you go to Acts 2, we see spirit baptism experienced. Acts 2, 1 through 13, this is it. This is spirit baptism experienced. This may have a longer passage, but listen, I'm going to read the whole thing. Acts 2, 1 through 13, this is the first instance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, verse 1. Not long after, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven noise, like a, a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. And we can stop there for now. In this text, we witness the first instance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit where the apostles were first immersed or filled with the spirit per Christ's new covenant promises. And in this case, the filling of the spirit did come with an outward sign. In this case, it was speaking in tongues. Back in chapter one, verse eight of Acts, Christ said the spirit would come and give them power to enhance their witness. And it works. The people around them were astounded by the sign. They're hearing all these real human languages being spoken of that these men never learned. They're, they're astounded. They're amazed at this miracle, but there's still some confusion. The people don't understand the significance of what they're witnessing, that they're wondering like, what does this mean? The why, why is this happening? And some even suppose that they're drunk. We wonder the same thing. Like what is the significance of this spirit baptism? Like what, what is going on here? Witnessing the sign is not enough. We need an explanation. And that is, in fact, the whole purpose of the sign, by the way, and all the sign gifts. It's to get people's attention so that they listen up to the explanation. And this sign most certainly caught everyone's attention. It made them ready with open ears to receive the explanation the Apostle Peter was going to give. And thankfully, his explanation is recorded in Scripture that we can benefit from it as well. So now we can turn right to spirit baptism explained. Spirit baptism explained here immediately hereafter in Acts 2. Peter's going to address the crowd. And in his message, he affirms that what the people witnessed was indeed the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. But he's going to fill them in on what it signifies, namely the arrival of new covenant salvation in the Messiah. This spirit baptism is the spirit baptism is not meant to give all believers like superpowers. It's meant primarily to bring them into the new covenant and unite them with Christ that they might be saved. Let's keep reading now. We'll we'll comment more as we go, but this verse 14, the next verse. It says, "But Peter, taking a stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, 
I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Stop there for a moment. Peter lets the crowd know that these men weren't drunk. Rather, what they were witnessing was the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Spirit, in this first instance, like we said, came with a sign. In this case, the sign was tongues. They spoke in uh, unlearned human languages. Real languages, not just made up gibberish, but real human languages. But like 1 Corinthians 14.22 says, tongues are not a sign for those who believe. They're a sign for unbelievers. And on this occasion, this sign pointed to these apostles as Christ's authoritative spokesman. It, it, it was their proof that God was truly going to now speak something new to them. He's going to reveal new truth to them. And so they better listen up. Indeed, Peter tells the crowd, verse 14, to give heed to his words. Like, you better listen now. And he explains to them that, that they were witnessing the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. This was the inauguration of the last days, which refers to the final age before the fullness of the kingdom comes. And this final age before the end is marked by the Spirit being poured out on all who believe. Keep in mind in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, we primarily see the Holy Spirit working in the lives of Israel's mediators, her prophets, her priests, her kings. Men like Moses and David were filled with the Spirit. But the New Covenant looked forward to the, the full, permanent indwelling of the Spirit. And not just for mediators, but for all people. Like, that's why he says in, in Joel's prophecy, men and women, old and young, all in Christ will receive his Spirit. And indeed, another main reason the Spirit has come is to create a new community, a new people of God, the church in these last days. And what is the defining feature of this new body? It's this common confession of Jesus as Lord. One enters this spirit-filled community, not by birth or by lineage, but by confessing Jesus as Lord. You'll see later, Peter adds down in verse 21, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the Old Testament, that name was Yahweh. You, you call on the name of Yahweh to be saved. But now that it's been progressively revealed that that name has been joined to another, Yahweh incarnate. And Peter reveals his name is Jesus. And so now all people must call on the name of Jesus to be saved. Peter goes on with the rest of this sermon to share that the gospel, the good news of the life, death, burial, resurrection of this Jesus to pay for our sins. And then at the end of his message, he comes back full circle to the promise of the Holy Spirit. So look at verse 32. Let's jump down for the sake of time to the end. Verse 32, he says at the end, this Jesus God has raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. You'll see in Peter's explanation, he's not reducing the coming of the Spirit to some mere power encounter. No, the Spirit's coming signifies nothing less than the beginning of the Messiah's new covenant salvation and the Messiah's new covenant 
people, the church. He says in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says to them, know for certain, and because of the resurrection, you can know for certain that that this Christ really is Lord and Savior. And for them to be saved now, they they must repent and confess him as their Lord and Savior. Thereafter, they'll be water baptized, be baptized in the name of Christ. That water does not save them, but is meant to demonstrate their identification with this new head, their Savior, Christ. They're now his disciples. They've identified with Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. But as they believe, he says, they too will receive the Holy Spirit. They will be brought into this new thing called the church. After this, what happens? It says 3,000 people believed. They were convicted. They were believed. They confessed Jesus as their Lord. As a result, they were water baptized. And that that water did not save them. But again, it symbolized their baptism in Christ. And what made that in itself effectual was the baptism in the Holy Spirit they received the moment they believed. And that's what united them to Christ. Those 3,000 new believers, they received the Spirit Right then and there, in that moment that they believed, they received the gift of the Spirit. They didn't have to wait around for a second filling. They were baptized with the Spirit when they believed. And as a result, by the way, none of them spoke in tongues, but they did enter the church, which is more significant, the new covenant people of God. And that is, after all, one of the main points of the Spirit baptism. It's the creation of of the church, the new covenant people of God. Now I should mention, since we introduced Pentecostals, they disagree because they believe what happened to the apostles here in Acts 2 should be normative for all believers today. And so there, the apostles had this experience of being filled with the spirit after their salvation, resulting in power that they could speak in tongues. And they think that should be the norm But you can probably see there's already several problems with this view. I mean, for one, you had 3,000 people who immediately believed. And they received the Spirit immediately upon their salvation. They didn't have to wait for a second filling. And furthermore, none of them spoke in tongues. That for sure would have been recorded. In addition, Pentecostals fail to understand just the function of the sign of tongues. Among the other signs, like why did God enable the apostles to do this? The whole purpose was to authenticate the apostles as Christ's authoritative witnesses. Like I said back in chapter 1, verse 8, the Spirit would give the apostles power, but it would enhance their witness. It would be their credentials that people would listen to them because God was going to use this group of uneducated Galilean fishermen to turn the world upside down. Why would anyone believe them? Well, the power of the signs given to them would be their their calling card. But these signs were never meant to be normative. And Pentecostals failed to appreciate how the apostles lived in this unique time of transition between the old and new covenants. 
The apostles followed Jesus. They were basically old covenant believers. But then the new covenant was inaugurated in their lifetime. And he had to bring them in. They had to be brought into the new covenant while they were already saved. That's why we witness their spirit filling after their salvation. But this whole, this whole time period was a unique time of transition between these two eras. Before the cross and after the cross. The old covenant and the new covenant. And so we most certainly do not expect that era to be normative. This, this is a time of transition. And that's why we don't take everything descriptive in the book of Acts as prescriptive. But most significantly, Pentecostals fail to grasp how Pentecost is at the heart of Christ's finished work. I want you to think about this. Pentecost, this what we see in Acts 2, is a part of Christ's finished work. The coming of the Spirit is not meant just, just as some experience for believers. It was the inauguration of the church and the capstone of Christ's atonement. The capstone of the atonement. Ordinarily, when you think of Christ's saving work, what do you think of? You think of his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And you're not wrong. It, that's how it starts. His death, burial, and resurrection. But the full order of his work that results in our salvation, you could say death, burial, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, the sending of the spirit, which he did. So that's part of his work. He sent the spirit. That is part of his salvation work. The spirit's coming. It is not just this secondary experience. It's part of his finished work. Christ accomplished redemption on the cross. His death and resurrection is how we're justified. But he did not apply redemption on the cross. How is his redemption applied? By the Holy Spirit, whom he sent and so if Christ never ascended, if he never sent the spirit, he would have made atonement on the cross, but no one would have received any of the benefits. So saving work would have been incomplete. He had to send the spirit for this new covenant salvation to begin. That's what Pentecost represents, the beginning of that. You know, Ezekiel 36 and elsewhere, God always promised that in coming days, he would establish a, a new covenant whereby he would pour out his spirit on all of his people, cause them to walk in his statutes, forgive all their sins, and it would be the Messiah to inaugurate this new covenant. That is what we're witnessing here. Pentecost, Acts 2, is the beginning of that. And so this specific event is not something that's meant to be repeated over and over. What we witness in Acts 2 is, is the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of of the, the final stage of Christ's work, which is the application of redemption, the sending of the Spirit to bring people into this church. Yes, there is an ongoing sense to Christ's work because he's still up there baptizing people with the Holy Spirit, sending the Spirit to regenerate people and unite them to Christ. But that is just part and parcel with salvation. That's nothing other than salvation. That's how people are saved and brought into the church. So in all, we can say Pentecostals, our brothers and sisters who believe the gospel are uh, Pentecostals are our fellow brothers and sisters. But with this view on spirit baptism, we can say they don't make too much of Pentecost. They make too little of it. They reduce it to this, what they say, a power encounter with the Holy Ghost that enables them to work signs and wonders. But what God was doing with the spirit in Acts was actually far greater than that. That God was beginning his new covenant. 
And the greater miracle that takes place each time someone is baptized with the Spirit is salvation, new birth. That's the greater miracle than speaking in tongues. And Pentecostals fail to realize that God's real power is not in these signs like tongues. They are power, absolutely, but it's not the greater power. They're just that. They're signs. The greater power comes in the things signified, namely salvation. And that is the greater miracle by far. But sadly and ironically, Pentecostalism tends to leave ordinary Christians who are saved and they have the spirit, but they don't know better. And they they feel like they're powerless until they speak in tongues and get this second blessing. They're they're kind of outsiders. That's really missing the point. At salvation, Christ has given you the fullness of his Holy Spirit. You already have access to all of his saving power. And he gives it all to you at salvation for what purpose? The primary purpose he gives you the spirit is not just to work wonders. It's for holy living. He is called the Holy Spirit after all. He gives him to you that you might now walk in his ways. And a major part of that holy living involves united living in the church. The spirit's power is used to unite this thing called the church. Let's go to one last verse before we wrap things up here and conclude. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Before we finish, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here we see how the Apostle Paul takes a turn at explaining spirit baptism. Peter's explanation was more focused on the event of Pentecost. But Paul will give us an even broader explanation of the significance of spirit baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, it's already in a context of introducing the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The whole chapter, he's talking about the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then down to verses 12 and 13, he says this. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. And he says, for... By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Verse 12, Paul's teaching on the oneness of the church. There's one body in Christ. Verse 13, he supports that point. How? By referencing our baptism into the body of Christ by the one spirit. And specifically, what does this spirit baptism accomplish in verse 13? That's what places us into the body of Christ. Go back to that word identification. The result of this spirit baptism is identification. In spirit baptism, we identify with Christ as our Lord and as our head. But we thereby also identify with everyone else who has Christ as their Lord and head. When the spirit unites us branches to the vine, at the same time, we're really being united to all the other branches that have been united to the one vine. And so effectively, this is the creation of the church. In spirit baptism, we identify with Christ and his body, the head and the body, the church. This is something that clearly in verse 13, this most definitely takes place at salvation, not after salvation. And this most definitely involves all believers without exception. 
No believer is left out of this spirit baptism just by definition. It's part of the definition. Every single person who truly confesses Jesus as Lord receives this spirit baptism. It unites them to Christ and his body, the church. Like it says, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. It says, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. This is for everyone in the church, no exceptions. But this is part of the monumental work God was beginning, starting at Pentecost. He was creating a new people of God, a new covenant community with Christ as the head. This community would no longer be an ethnocentric people, meaning all about one race like Israel. Rather, it would consist of all the redeemed from all the nations united as one. We take that for granted, but you think about that concept. That is a radical concept for this broken world that all these different people, old, young, male, female, slave, free, black, white, come together as one body. That doesn't happen, but the spirit would make that happen in this thing called the church. And it was always God's plan to bless all of the nations in Christ and make them one people by the one spirit. When you get to this point, after all this Bible study, you get to this point, you start to arrive at a better understanding of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some, some huge implications start to surface for us today. You know, for one, we've learned this morning, or rather what we've learned this morning about the baptism of the Holy Spirit means that if you're here today in Christ by faith, you already have all the power you need for Christian living. You don't have to desperately wait and wonder for more. You were given the fullness of the Spirit at salvation. You have the Spirit's full power for holy living, for effective witness, for spiritual growth. What you really need to do is is stop waiting around for God to give you power to change you. You can imagine his response would be like, I already gave you the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Like, What more can I do apart from completely removing your personal responsibility? No, rather, you have all you need. Your responsibility then is to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He worked salvation into you by grace. Now you need to work it out. You need to live it out. And you can trust, you can simply trust that the Spirit will empower you to do all that as you abide in Christ. Remember, all this power comes from our union to the vine, to Christ. Let me read for you John 15, 4 through 5. Where Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And one of the reasons the Lord saved us was to bear the fruit of righteousness, which pleases him. Christ would go on to say in John 15, 8, he says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And he says, and so prove to be my disciples. This is how you both glorify God and prove your salvation. But this, this fruit, this, this righteous living, it does not come by self-effort or self-reliance. It comes by the spirit. 
As you abide in Christ, and as Jesus clarified in verse 7, he said, as my words abide in you, you'll bear much fruit. You gain access to that power. The Spirit will propel us to effective Christian living where we then bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's a result of the Spirit's work in our lives. So practically then, if you, what you need to do to grow is abide in Christ. Let his words abide in you, like he said. Daily draw near to the Savior, sit at his feet, take in his words of life found in the scriptures. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The Spirit uses that to sanctify you. It's just like Jesus himself prayed for you. Did you know Jesus prayed for you while he was alive? John 17, high priestly prayer. He prayed for all of his future disciples who would come to believe in him. And this is one thing he prayed for you, John 17, 17. He prayed to his father that, that God would sanctify them in what? In experience, sanctify them in feeling, sanctify them in emotion. All that matters, but he says you're to be sanctified in truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And as you let the word abide in you, uh, the, uh, the spirit's power will grow you. And speaking of Christ's high priestly prayer, you know, there in John 17, Christ also reveals one of his greatest desires for this people, this church, namely unity. John 17, 21, he, he prayed that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. There's a lot in that one little verse, but you can see though, a central part of God's design for this church was unity. This unity would lead to greater joy for those within and greater witness to those without. And as we learned this morning, our unity, even practically, is a function of our baptism in the spirit. Being united to Christ, the head, so we are united to the body, the church, by the same spirit. This is a supernatural unity. Naturally, sin divides. Man divides from one another. From the beginning, we, we divide from one another. You might think about the racial division in our country, but in reality, every country, every culture, in every age has found some sinful reason to divide from one another. And the true church should have no part in any of that but be radically different by being radically one. But such unity could only be accomplished supernaturally. Like I said before, only when you have all these different people, rich and poor, male and female, old, young, black, white, you name it, but they're all marked by this genuine, sincere love for one another. They're experiencing a oneness, a charity, a generosity, just a love for one another, despite all these differences, Christ said, that's going to give the world this most powerful witness. I guess God really did send Jesus, because what's the other explanation of this oneness that the world has never known and will never know? However, because our sinful flesh remains, the church's unity is not perfect in this age. And we know selfishness still reigns in our flesh, which divides us. So while we have the Spirit, if we do not daily walk by the Spirit, we will lose the experience of unity that Christ desires for his church. 
And so therefore, if you want some application, it just means to take seriously these words. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Just listen carefully. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. It says in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He goes on to say, there's, there's one body and one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. We truly are one in Christ. We don't fully realize it. We don't fully see it. But if you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, we are more than we know and appreciate one in Christ. There's only one church, one true church, universal, made one in Christ by his one gospel and one spirit. And we can at least say this, to the degree that, that this local church reflects this unity, God will be glorified, our joy will be magnified, and the world will be evangelized. But, you know, this means that, that we must work diligently, like Paul said, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so is that something you ever think about and you, you try and do? You intentionally set to work hard at preserving the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Or do you let sometimes your, your petty selfish interests divide you from others, especially in the church? And you realize if you let your unbiblical differences divide you from other Christians in general, or, or especially in a local church, you are endangering the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You don't want to be responsible for that. All you would be doing is siphoning away your own joy and undercutting the church's witness. Instead, we all need to be continually challenged to show tolerance for one another in love, being humble, gentle, patient with one another. Differences in all. When sin gets in the way, and it will, deal with it biblically through repentance and restoration. And when your personal preferences get in the way, just, just put them away. Learn to defer your will to others in the body of Christ. To prefer others. I mean, surely your will, if, it, if it's not God's will, is definitely not a reason to introduce a tear in the body of Christ. Lay down yourself and your personal interests for the sake of others. That's what Christ did for us. When we do that, we are following him. This all takes work. It takes denying self. Denying the flesh. It, talks, it takes daily walking by the Spirit. But I would challenge all of us to rise to the task. The Spirit has fully come upon you in your baptism. Your baptism in Christ. Your baptism in the Spirit. You have all you need from God to live, to worship, to grow, to witness. In your salvation, you have what you need. You've been filled with that power. So now, daily, walk by the Spirit. He will enable you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we, we, we pray this, this morning. You, you sharpen our resolve to do just that. Help us to do what you call us to do, to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. 
Lord, I think we all would confess all too often we are self-reliant. We, we think we can do things in our own way, our own strength, our own will be done. Uh, but we must put that all aside. We, we realize what you have done for us in Christ, the Savior, the head who has come, the life giver who died on the cross to pay the penalty for all of our sins and rose again, proving his victory over sin, Satan, and death. And then that Savior ascended and sent down his spirit and still does so, Lord, uh, uniting us to him by faith. This is the, the miracle, the wonder of your salvation. You've brought us into a new covenant. And at the same time, uniting us to one another, a new people, a temple built together, uh, a holy habitation for you for all eternity. There's a great wonder here. There's a great mystery here and marvel at what you are doing in this thing called the church. We're grateful to be a part of it. We know it's undeserved. It's by your grace, but I pray we not take it for granted or do it wrong. Help us to, to walk in this worthy manner. We need your spirit to do that. Let us though be propelled to, to abide in Christ. Let his words abide in us and that then we would be controlled by the spirit's desires in our hearts and bear fruit. That's our desire, Lord. This is all a lot, but we again just call upon you for help. We know you will answer that prayer. You have given us the spirit already. We can walk with assurance, but be with us. Do not fail or forsake us. We know you won't, and we look to uh, honor you with our ways. Be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.